Okay, now, review. We're gonna go back really quickly, I hope we can do it pretty quickly, about the, the subject of knowing your God, because last week in class, we had so much, as you know, the week before last, when we were together for uh, lesson three, we covered chapter one, and we got to be introduced to how Daniel wants us to perceive and understand who God is, right? And one of the key repeated words when we did uh, lesson one and two, those first two weeks, was we saw a key repeated phrase concerning God, and that is that God was referred to as God Most High. Now, what do you recall about God Most High? What are the qualities or the characteristics about that title that we know? What do you know about that title? Anything? Okay, the sovereignty of God. So one of the th ways that scripture as an inductive student, the way that you can figure out what it is that God is wanting you to know about any subject or any, uh, in this case, the subject of God himself is the titles that are used for him. So the subject matter of God most high being a key repeated phrase in the book of Daniel is first introduced to us in chapter one through two titles of God. The first one we looked at last week and where he was called the Lord. And I want to reiterate this so that you get it down really solidly in your thinking every time you enter into this. That was in Daniel 1, verse 2. He's called the Lord. That was the word Adonai. Does anybody remember what Adonai means? What is the emphasis in that subject of Adonai or the title it mean itself? Does anybody remember? Master. Very good. Master. And actually, the English translation, the Lord, is, an, is also a very good uh, definition for the Adonai title. So he's Lord, he's Master. And um, concerning the Lord, the focus in that is on what? Lord and Master focuses on what quality? Authority, yeah. So the, uh, the focus, he's the true God. And it's with, um, with a focus on authority. And, and I'm going to add on here authority of a ruler, just to complete the thought of there. So that was the first mention of God by name in, the, in chapter 1 of Daniel. The second mention, do you remember where that one is found? How was he called there? It's more generic. Elohim. Elohim, and it's in English, God, right? It, it's kind of interesting. It's just It sounds pretty generic, but the word God is used a lot in the scripture. Why do you think that is in a book like Daniel? Why is the title God, which seems very generic, why do you think it's used? How else is it used? What is the contrast to Daniel's God? all those little gods, right? And so God is a term that the people of Babylon understood, right? So their concept of what God was supposed to be was understood for them through the word God. And so the word God seems to be used an awful lot in this book, it, although it's kind of broad, right? But when you narrow it down to a comparison, I remember when 
9-11 happened, and we were attending a small Baptist church at that time, and um, one of the things I was asked to do was to come in and try to give some comfort to the hearts of people who at that time were quite fearful. It was, it was you remember when 9-11 happened and the towers came down and it felt like is, Islam was just invading us? And so one of the things I did was I said, look, you have to understand that you have to um, hate the sin but love the sinner, right? You also need to understand the contrast between who they have as a God and who we have as a God. And so what we did was we did a list. Does that surprise you? And I said, who is their God? What are his qualities? What are his characteristics, right? How does he interact with his people? What is his mission? What is the end goal in their faith system? And then we contrasted that with ours. What a contrast. But the doing of that then gave the, the body of Christ a sense of calm and a sense of um, just peace in the midst of the turmoil that was going on. Why? Why? Yeah. Because when you compare the two gods, there is no comparison. And our God, being a God who is God Almighty or God Most High, Right? He is that God who has, he is master, he is Lord, he is the true God with a focus on authority of rulership. When you know that he is ruling and reigning in the, in the realms of the heavens, then you know that that God that they worship, who is a little g, who is actually no God at all, according to, as Paul teaches us, right, in the book of Acts, it, it, there is no comparison, and suddenly your feet are grounded, your heart slows down, and you go, I, okay, that's right. We have a God who's a, an all-powerful God who is the ruler in the heavens. So then the other one is the word God, and it's number uh, 430, and the word, it's the word Elohim. And it's spelled in a variety of ways, but, oops, God, Elohim, okay. And in that one, again, it's, it's very similar to the Lord. This is what's very unique. But one of the qualities, though, it, it extends into is what? Does anybody know what uh, Elohim focuses on? Pardon? Uh, well, it can, yes, Trinity, which is important to you and I as Christians, the understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yes. Creator. That's the one I was aiming for. Why do you think that's important for a national people like Babylon? Okay, yeah. They are creatures. They are they have been created. Now tell me what do you know about their God system concerning creation? Which one of their gods created and what did they create? And, and which one of their gods has power, like our God has power, but what is, and what is their power over? They have lots of, lots of powers, but they had one of the kings called God. Yes. The king, and our God has it all. There you go. The contrast in these two gods, um, you know, so you throw out the word God, and God is 
Um, it is a, it's simply a title, a name. It gives him identity. But when you look at the qualities or the characteristics of the two gods, they are not even comparable. The little g god is a god of, for instance, like they have a god. We looked at one. He was the moon god, right? So he's the god of the moon. What else was and that god? His territory, his jurisdiction, his 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 outreach was the moon, right? And what other gods do they have? The God of the sun. So then there's the moon and there's the sun. Those are in the heavenly realm. So what about the earthly realm? Pardon? Okay, yes, there was a God of the harvest who produced the things of the earth, right? And some of, sometimes it even broke down further than that. It would be the, the, a God of the wheat and a God of the, of the fruits and vegetables or the, uh, the fruit-bearing trees or, you know, it would even break down further than that, right? The, there's a god of water, fertility. There's a god of fertility. So now what you're beginning to see then is when he introduces Elohim, and what we understand about Elohim is that he is the creator, and what is he the creator of? All things. Now, Colossians chapter 1, if anybody is, their brain is going crazy, there's the verses that, you know, in him all things hold together and he created all things by him and through him and for him are all things. So our God is a creator God. They consider that they have a creator God, but their creator God is a creator God of one thing at a time. Each God has its own jurisdiction. Our God is the God. So when we get further into the book of Daniel and you see Daniel giving God praise, what is the thing that he says to him there in those verses uh, like 22, 23, 21 to 23, something like that? Go, let's go there and look. Do you remember how he refers to God and he begins to give God praise? Uh, no, this is Daniel after when he, when Daniel is given understanding or interp an interpretation of the vision. He's given understanding of what the vision was because basically he's given the vision, right? So he sees the vision himself. Now he knows what the vision is that, the, that Nebuchadnezzar has had. And then he goes on to be given interpretation of it or understanding of it. So then Daniel goes on to bless God. And what does he say about God? Yeah, I mean, this is an amazing difference between the little g gods. So it's easy for you and I as Christians because we have, we almost sometimes read over these things and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that about God. Yeah, it's a given. But you got to understand it from the perspective of the receiving end of this, the Babylonian people who have a God system that is very different and their understanding and knowledge of who God was is contrast starkly to the God that they are now being introduced to. I think of a, the passage in um, Acts 27 where it speaks about God, and he says he's the, he is the creator God, right? And it says that he, he created, he designed you, he placed you in a, a specific time in history, and he did so that you might seek God and find God, although he is not far from any one of you. 
right? God is not far from any human being on the entirety of this planet, which he created. He not only created this planet, but he created you. He gave you the exact mother and father he wanted you to have. He put you in the exact nation he wanted you to be in. He put you in the exact city and place of birth he desired for you. Think of the, the intricacy of that. So we've gone from a God who is this, this God of the universe who's also intimately involved with us as individuals. That's a stark contrast to the gods they had, who had a god who's, well, he's a god of this cup of water. The other god is the god of these chairs, right? Then there was a god of something on the ground, the dirt, the soil. That is a stark difference. So Nebuchadnezzar and his people in Babylon at this time in history are being introduced to an entirely different god. Yes? Yes. Yes. One of the things I looked up last night when I was studying all this, I found a website. This is just Wikipedia, so this is not any, it's not a biblical dictionary, it's just a general one, which I like to do sometimes because what I like to do is balance what is the biblical world saying, but also what is the world world saying. You know, because the world world is where our unbelieving friends come from. So this is the information that they would would say, oh, yes, this is acceptable. This was Wikipedia after all, right? <laughs> it must be true. <laughs> and it's not, it's not biased through a religious view. It's simply factual information through archaeology and history and writings and so forth. So... No, of course not. And you know, I've got a whole other story on that one when we do apologetics, but I will, I will withhold my thoughts there. Okay, so this is a list of Mesopotamian deities. This is page one and two, front and back, of 20 pages on this subject. That's how many gods they listed on this one Wikipedia site. And you know they didn't do an exhaustive listing of them. The, the deities of, of Mesopotamia and of Babylon on, on the whole, but of the world at that time in history, was extensive. There were so many, there, there was a God, I remember when we were doing seven churches study, there, was a, there were guilds also that people had to be, belong and be members of, and they had to give tribute to, right, give offerings to these different gods. Because, again, just like in the case of these gods here, they, they required care these gods did. They were, they were gods that did require human hands to assist them, right? And by the way, they were also gods, the idols of them, were, were gods made by human hands. What a contrast to our God, who is a God who is, who is not made by human hands. But let me just read this part to you here. It's very interesting. The ancient Mesopotamians believed that their deities lived in heavens. They did believe that deities could come from the heavens, and some of them actually dwelt in the heavens like the sun, the moon, or whatever. However, this is very interesting. But that a god's statue was a physical embodiment of the god himself. Think about it. Which means they have captured that heavenly being and placed him into a confined space of a, of a statue of some form that they have created, 
It says, as such, cult statues were given constant care and attention, and set and a set of priests were assigned to tend to them. These priests would clothe the statues. They would place feasts before them so they could eat. Remember, they were libations of uh, uh, wine, they were also, which is why Jesus, uh, Daniel in chapter 1 said, no, I won't partake of the wine. They were also food offerings, and that's why the offerings that have been given to these deities, Daniel would not eat. So he restrained himself to basically fruits, vegetables, water, right? So um, they would feed them and give them libations. A, a deity's temple was believed to be that deity's literal place of residence. Okay, now this is a, are you already beginning to grab hold of the contrast that we've looked at this week in what we've seen in Daniel chapter 2? So this, this book is opening up, it's giving you a contrast. It's you may not see the subtleties of it through just simply reading it as we do through our American mindset, but if you had the mindset of the Babylonian, this would be a, a revolutionary concept of who God is, right? And that's why in throughout the whole text, he keeps making reference to Daniel's God, right? Or the God of the Israelites is often referred to throughout all of scripture, the God of Israel, because it was a different kind of God than the God throughout the lands. Um, and this is also why God's covenant had some very specific restrictions in it, because there needed to be distinction between the gods of the, of the people, the little gods, versus him as God. So what is the one thing that God forbid Israel to do concerning God? Do not make any graven image. So here, they take their God, they make a graven image, and now they, they confine him into that physical, um, in the physical uh, which manifestation, basically, of their God. It says the gods ha also, listen, this is how far they went with it. Okay, so the temple was believed to be that deity's literal place of residence because he's been confined to a statue and he's now put in there. Y Yoshiko could probably understand this really well because of her background. This is exactly the kind of thing that she came out of in her previous um, experience. Okay, then it goes on. It says, and the gods had boats, full-sized barges, which were normally stored inside their temples. They were used to transport their cult statues along waterways during various religious festivals. The gods also had chariots, which were used for transporting their cult statues by land. Sometimes a deity's cult statue would be transported to the location of a battle so, they, so that the deity could watch the battle unfold. This, this, is, this is the god of Mesopotamia. This is the god of the Babylonian world. These gods, plural, are what is being contrasted in chapter 1 and 2 thus far, and, and it's going to continue to build. This is just the beginning. This is why Kay has said in your inductive study time, it's so important for you to um, make a list on who is God and who is Daniel in this, because you're learning through looking at who the God of Israel is, who God, Daniel's God is. You're learning um, the qualities and the characteristics of the God that's unique unique to the world of particularly of that time in history, right? And with Daniel, our list on Daniel, what are we learning? What are you learning about Daniel? He's okay that he's he in, he's distinctive from many of the other sons of Israel who came out, right? 
Because last week we looked at that, the sons of Israel, and out of the sons of Israel there were some sons of Judah. Do you remember what that meant? Why that, that language change? What did Judah mean? It means praise. And the implication in the mind of a Jew who hears that word Judah, sons of Judah, what are they giving praise to? Their God, the God of Judah, the God of Israel. So they are throwing praise to God. It's a, it's a picture of throwing praise. Throwing praise to who? Throwing praise to their God. And so this is the contrast that we're seeing in Daniel here concerning the God's Exactly. You look at it, there's 49 chapters in Daniel 2. 29 of those, I'd say 60% of the, of the book, is all about a contrast yes. between the sorcerers, Chaldeans, yes. wizards yes. of Babylon, and, and Daniel, and the gods of theirs, and the god of Daniel. Yes. So Okay, James, we can go home. He preached the whole story. That is exactly that is exactly my point. And this is where what we're trying to draw you to. Go ahead, finish. I need a Kleenex. Yep. Yes. Yes, because their God, in contrast, is what? Thank you so much, Carol. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Yes. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's an amazing storyline how this unfolds and how what what God is actually trying to teach us. Now, you and I, as Bible students, and inductively, we are digging these points out. But most people go through Daniel, read just the they see all the action, all the events, all the uh, all the external things they see uh, the statue the dream the, and they focus just there they don't go down into the deepness of why is this whole story being told what is the what is the systemic message beneath it that's the point of the whole point to this story the point to this event that God created in a time in history for not just Babylon but for all of us even down through the ages look look at what we are still learning right and so God yes go ahead <laughs> okay Yeah. Yes. Isn't this isn't this exciting once you really start to say, oh, okay, now I see what I'm looking at. 
Now I understand why I'm looking at this storyline. So it's no longer a superficial story about, it's kind of like, you know, kids always remember the story of the flood, Noah and the ark, you know what I mean? Or David and Goliath. But they don't go to the heart of the message. What was God teaching you about himself and about man? Because all of Genesis is who is God and who is man? Well, really, so is Daniel. Who is God and who is man? What is God's plan for the ages and where are, where are we headed in the events that are being displayed to us? And what is God trying to show us about his relationship to man? What does he want us to know about who our God is that we can um, establish our feet in it, feel confident in it, have peace in the midst of all the things that are going on? Consider Daniel's situation, Daniel and his friends. Where were they when all these things were going on? in captivity so let's go back what we learned i just want to do a real quick recap what we've already learned what we have learned about god and i'm speaking of our, the god of daniel right because the contrast is their gods versus the little gods right all right so what have we learned the first thing that he is sovereign right Somebody's already said that, so I'm just going to write it up here. That he is sovereign. He is sovereign over what? Yeah, kings and kingdoms in particular in this book. Kings and kingdoms are two major words in this particular book. So when you did your, your overview, you learned that kings and kingdoms comes up over and over and over in some form or fashion throughout the entire book. He's making reference to rulers and how God is the one who is over those, the establishing of them. Um, well, yes, but it isn't, it isn't quite as strongly emphasized. You see it when you look for it, but the big picture, one of the things about inductive study is you look for the obvious. You don't go digging deeper at first. When you do that first superficial overview, you're looking for what is obvious, what is stated the most. That's your author's primary purpose. Yes, that's true. But you know what? That's also true that God is many things that we're not going to be discussing in Daniel, right? I mean, you the, con consider God is love, God is mercy, God is judge. God is, I mean, he's all these things, right? And we, we see allusions to a lot of it in there, but the major emphasis in here, major subject is what? Kings and kingdoms, right? And so you, once you realize that is your author's purpose for writing, the author being inspired by God to sit and write this book, this is what God wants you to know about who God is. Why? What's about to happen according to what we looked at this week? There's going to be the coming of kings and the falling of kings, kingdoms. The rising up of kingdoms and the falling of kingdoms. And if you, if you are a person who is living in the midst of that event occurring, will Daniel see the fall of Babylon and the rising of the, the second kingdom that was mentioned in that statue? He sees it for himself with his own eyes. Knowing what God has already given to him through this vision that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar and that he was placed in a position to give interpretation, what does that do for Daniel and people like Daniel who have put their faith and trust in God? What now do they have 
an ability to do when they're seeing this turmoil unfold again? Have peace. Have confidence. Have new. Yep, I knew that was coming, right? And when you and when you know it's coming, right? Yes. So the he, that he is omni omniscient, right? He's omniscient, omniscient, omniscient. And he's sovereign. Well, okay, so this is what he is sovereign. He is omniscient. Okay, he's omniscient. Uh, and he's and in his omniscience, because he knows what's coming, and, and he's the one who's planning it, right? He's able to carry out his word, and so he's also uh, omnipotent, right? So he's sovereign. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. Um, when it came to the opening of Daniel in chapter 1, we, the first thing we saw God do with Israel was do what? He gave them over to these kings. So again, there's that sovereignty and that, and that all-powerful work of God in there. Why did he give them over? Do you remember that part? Why? Disobedience to what? To their covenant. They as a nation have been in covenant with God. It was a conditional covenant. So I want to put this on. I also want to put this up here. I don't have room. I'm just going to talk it, okay? You guys can write it down. It'll be on my chart when you get the chart. But one of the things you have to understand doctrinally when we're doing the book of Daniel and constantly go back to remind yourself of is there are three co covenants that are going to be coming to mind for you. In the book specifically, there's the covenant of the law, but there's also a, a alluded reference back to the Abrahamic covenant as well. We see this through the lives of Daniel and his three friends and the way that God is interacting and dealing with them that is very distinct to the way that he is dealing with the nation who has broken that covenant of law, right? So what is the covenant that Daniel and his friends obviously are, are in also? Is the Abrahamic covenant. Because why? What is the Abrahamic covenant? The land, the sea, and the nation promised to Abraham. And how did Abraham enter into that covenant? Bible. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. I want us to read verses 6 to 8 and then verse thir uh, 16. Because that is going to give you interpretation. That's a commentary basically on that Abrahamic covenant. And so we can get it really quickly um, kind of known to us at least presented out there. We don't have time to go through and teach it. I just want you to see it. Okay, who's got uh, Galatians 3, 6 to 8? I want you to listen for what is it that Abraham knew and what was this covenant that he entered into. Martha.
all the nations will be blessed in you. Okay, so he did promise the land, the seed, and the nation, but the, the covenant that Abraham entered into was a covenant that he entered into by faith, right? Believing that God was going to do what? Believing God for what? This land, the seed, and the nation. Now let's look at who, specifically who is that seed that he was believing God for. Go to Galatians 3.16, just further on down the passage. Yeah, go ahead, Martha. Okay, so when God preached the gospel to Abraham, and Abraham believed it, what was the gospel that he was believing in? The seed that was going to come. And who was the seed? Christ. Wow. So what are we saying when I bring up the Abrahamic covenant compared to the covenant of law? The covenant of law and their breaking it is what got them into Babylon. Right? Because the nation, over years and years of abuse and neglect and, and breaking their covenant with God, finally God did what? Judges them. Now, that brings up another point about God, another quality about God. How long did God delay in bringing them this judgment and casting them off the land? Oh, he is so long suffering. He is long suffering. I'm going to put on here, uh, patient in judgment, right? So he, he is so patient with them as a nation. Okay, and so when God then had this covenant with them, they broke the, the covenant of law as a nation. But what about the individuals in the midst of this? Are you seeing the contrast between how God is handling the nation and what they did but yet, in the midst of that, there's these people like Daniel and his three friends. How is God handling them? Yeah, yeah. What did we learn about God um, in that? We see that God, God showed favor. God favor and compassion. Right? Um, uh, he, he also protected them, right? He protected Daniel plus three, <laughs> right? Um, what, how did God, God, when he saw Daniel and his three friends, what does it say that he saw them as? What, were they, what was the contrast again in the title that was given? Sons of Israel versus sons of Judah. So when God identifies them, he distinguishes that out. Did you notice? I mean, it was not an accident that God brought this up. So he makes this very declarative switch in titles that he refers to these three specifically. And he says, out of those sons of Israel were these sons of Judah. And so interesting is the other characteristic that you see is God sees the individual. He sees the national dilemma that was going on, the national disobedience, the national betrayal of their covenant oath, right? And he was dealing with the nation. But in the midst of that, what is God doing? 
He's dealing with the individuals who are faithful. So although they are being brought along with the nation into in its discipline as a nation, yet individually, what is God doing? He's blessing. He's protecting. He's giving compassion. He's, he's actually moving the hearts of the people who have got them held captive and motivating them towards a positive response to them as as men because of their individual personal relationship with God. So how is this then come for you and I as we're looking at this, what's coming up next, which is eschatology that we're looking at, the things that are going to happen in the future? Isn't that amazing, Angie, to think that because how, how many people do you know get fearful when they start thinking about the end of the world? And it is coming. There's a day coming when the world itself will end, but there's also an end of the age that's coming, right, which is the time when God will come to judge the nations. Be- Revelation 19.11, he comes on that white horse, and he comes waging war. Right, and the blood rises as high of the as, as the bridle on the horses in that day, and we're going to look at all that in time as we get into the um, Revelation study. But knowing that God, in the midst of that judgment, He deals with the individual believer in a different way. Whew. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Praise God, I know you. Praise God, you told me that. Praise God, it's written in your word so that none of us have to be fearful of those days that are coming. And if you're a person, you know, that you're witnessing to these people outside of our realm, people who do not know the Lord, you can tell them you can have the same peace that I have. I do not fear the end of the age. Um, Many years back when I was teaching um, precept classes in my home, in Virginia, I had a, a very young group of ladies back then. Of course, I was quite young too, so I was younger myself. But I do remember that there was a big deal going on at one point about the ozone and how the, the earth was going to burn up and all these things, right? Because, I well, yeah, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that, Angie, but you're probably right. It's, I mean, they're still always talking about doom and gloom. Well, look at what's going on. Yes, climate change and all this, right? So... When you're when you're dealing with the unsaved or young believers who have not yet established themselves in knowing their God, this is why these kinds of studies are absolutely essential for the body of Christ. You need to absolutely have, and it's not just about a knowing them, but it's a reviewing them on a constant basis to remind yourself you have nothing to fear. You have a God who can handle the the ungodliness of the world and he can discipline even the ungodly, those who have walked away from their their, uh, covenants or their promises or their, you know, even their own personal values of what they think are right and wrong, but they walk in a different way. They walk away from God refusing to bow their knee to our God. But it's important for you and I to understand that you and I, in covenant with God, our covenant's a different covenant. It's very similar to the Abrahamic covenant that uh, Daniel and his friends were under. The covenant of law was conditional. And you know what it never resulted in? Salvation. It was never intended to be a covenant of salvation, and it was not a covenant of salvation, right? Does everybody know that? 
Okay, but the Abrahamic covenant resulted in what? And Abraham believed God. Come on, you guys know this. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So D, um, Abraham came into faith, received salvation under the Abrahamic covenant. The promise that he was given was that Jesus Christ would come one day through his seed, through his bloodline. Which, in fact, now, where are we in history? We're now in the third covenant I want to bring up, the new covenant. Our covenant, we are not in the covenant of the law. God is never going to cast us off the land or cast us out of his kingdom, ever. Why? Our covenant is unconditional, doesn't depend on our behavior, although are there expectations for us? What are the expectations in a covenant? Are there expectations? When you go into covenant, what happens to two? Two become one. And what does that mean then in, in covenant with God is we take on our covenant partner. In, in, in the Bible study that we do uh, it, through precept on the subject of covenant, it, there's a whole section in there about the Davidic covenant between David and Jonathan and how uh, David put on the robe of Jonathan and pictorially what that teaches us in the New Testament is we take on the robe of Christ, taking on his identity and therefore two become one in identity. And therefore, because scripture says, I am holy, therefore what? You be holy. Why? Because you have covenant responsibility to do what? Represent your covenant partner. So your obedience, according to James chapter 2, I think it is, it talks about the royal law. What is the royal law? Which This is kind of what the message is I'm trying to teach you. Is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews, right, teaches us that. God is an unchanging God. So what you have to distinguish, though, when you're reading Scripture is which covenant are you looking at when you're looking at how God is dealing with the people? Are you looking at the covenant of law, which had a total... What was the premise for the covenant of law? What was the point? What were they supposed to do? They were to display who God was. Again, take on the identity of their covenant partner and display him to the world. That was what... They were to be a light on a hill to the world, to the nations. But they failed in it. They broke it. That covenant was conditional. As long as you're portraying me to the world correctly, you get to remain on your land. But if you don't, you're out, right? Do you understand? So there's three covenants. The law, which is conditional. The Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. It leads to salvation. And the one we're in, unconditional, leads to salvation. It's both of those last two, the Abrahamic and the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, are both by grace. They're by faith, and there's an expectation that you understand in a covenant you are to represent your covenant partner correctly. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Your obedience is not you have to be holy or else you're out. It's be holy because I am and you're representing me. That's what the nation of Israel was supposed to do. So does that kind of help you? I think I'm, I, I know I went off on a little bit of a tangent here because before I go into the next part, but I just feel like it's so important that you understand who your God is. And I think there are those pillars of truth that you need to understand. And one of them is about the, the different covenants. 
The covenant that God is dealing with primarily that we're observing is what he was doing with Israel, the nation. They were under a covenant of law as a nation. But then every now and then you have to slip over into the covenant of Abraham for Daniel and his three friends, which is just like you and I's covenant. They simply believed on the Jesus who was to come. We believe on the Jesus who did come. But both of those are covenants of grace that result in salvation. So Daniel and his friends were in a covenant with God of salvation. It's obvious by their behavior and by the way that they dealt and handled their life. Right? James goes on to talk about that. He says, you can say that you know him. But there are many who will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and, I, and I'll say unto them, I knew them not. That's in another book. But anyway, I'm mixing all my scriptures here. But James goes on to say, look, I will show you my salvation by my works. And the evidence of your salvation is how you live out your life. Yes? Do we understand that? That's why people can look at your life and make a judgment. So don't fall for the old, the old lie out there, oh, judge not, lest you be judged. That is not what the scripture teaches. That judgment is a totally different subject. It's not saying that you should not examine the fruit of a tree, as Jesus said. Examine the fruit and you will know whether they belong to me, right? Okay, that was, that was part one. <laughs> now we're ready to look at our lesson. I know, but we're good. We got an, we've got an hour, so we're in great shape. We're going to cover now this dream and the interpretation. What did you see in the book of Daniel? One of the things that you should have done, and I know this is a lot of work, and we're not going to go through this. I'm just going to point out what you did in your homework. You should have found keywords and marked them. You should have made lists on all of your keywords. Are you seeing my lists up here, guys? Okay, so here's a list on, uh, this is God, this is Daniel, this one is Nebuchadnezzar, here's one on the wise men of Babylon, here's one on wisdom, here's one on Arioch, I did one on Arioch, and then I ended up doing an, um, um, kind of an analytical list that shared with Arioch where I made some in interesting observations about how God protected and made provisions for Daniel as he worked with this man, Arioch. Why would that be necessary? Who was Arioch in this storyline? He was the commander of the, of the king's, yes, officials. He was, what, what was his job? He was the killer. He was the assassin for the king. He would go about executing people that the king said, execute. Now, did you think it interesting how, first of all, the king, as, as James said earlier, the king basically said, look, you better tell me or else, right? You're out of here, right? But at the same time, when he says, I know that you are stalling, right? You're just stalling for time with me. And yet when Daniel is approached by Arioch, what do we see happen? What is the thing that Daniel requests? More time. <laughs> right. Now, what is the contrast in that? Did that pop into your mind at all as you thought, no, wait a minute. On the one hand, he's telling the wise men of, of uh, Babylon, he's tired of their stalling. He sees it as a game, a ploy, right? That they're just gaming him. And he's like, no, I've had it. You either tell me or you're dead, right? And then he sends his, his henchman out, the guy that's supposed to execute all of these, destroy them. And the first thing he, he does is he's 
he's out there, he's finding Daniel, and what is the encounter about? But he starts with who? But who does he start with? He starts with the commander, Ariok. Ariok is the one who explains to him. He, first he says to, Ariok says to him, let me explain to you what the map. Yes. Right. Right. How did he get, how did he get to walk away from the presence of Ariok without Ariok's permission? Do you see what I'm saying? There you go. So when he approached him, what are the two qualities? Again, discretion. How many of us have entered into conversations with people and all of a sudden we get this sense from the Lord, be careful what you're saying, use discretion and discernment. I can tell you I usually don't listen to that little voice. <laughs> because I have a problem with my mouth. However, I have learned to get better as I've gotten older. I mean, the older I get, the more careful I am about what I disclose or how I say things or how I approach things or even when. It's not always the appropriate time. Sometimes it's the right thing, but not the appropriate time. Esther was a great story on that one, right? There you go. It's real. That's real. Paul. It is possible, and it seems to be evident by what he did do, right? But because God had already given Daniel favor before him and compassion, so he's already got a bent towards really kind of liking Daniel. Now, what else does this kind of imply to you when Daniel basically says, "Give me time to the king," and the king allows it? Why do you think the king allows it after he's already told those wise men, "Forget it." Yes. So I think they distinguished themselves previously like, he's not like these guys. Right. There seems to be, and we don't know also what other things have occurred through the time between when he was selected by the king and proven to be ten times better, right? And at this point, but this is the record that's given to us to see the distinguishing of Daniel from the other wise men, correct? There's a contrast going on between who Daniel is as a man who has wisdom versus the, quote, wise men of Babylon who are a, a, a conglomeration of people. Yeah. And Ariok then gives him favor and says, yeah, you're going to be torn from limb to limb, and basically I'm going to take your head. However, uh, okay, go ahead, go, go pray. He allows him to just walk away. What would keep him from just running? I mean, I, that, that always kind of came to my mind, but obviously it probably wasn't a wise thing to do. The, you know, there were eyes everywhere to be found, uh, people in that day, just like, you know, there is today.
Well, they didn't start out there. The first two times, they were acting like, they, well, just tell us the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. There is some difference. Yes, absolutely. But, but, and that, do you not think that's part of the, the information that God is trying to portray to us about who his people are and who his, he is as their God versus the wise men? Now, who are these wise men? Did anybody do word studies on these various wise men? Okay, tell me what the, the distinguishing people of these groups, the magicians and the sorcerers and... Okay. So you have some that, um, like the magicians, were um, kind of like horoscopists. They did mm-hmm. the, the drawings and engraving and writing, so it was like sacred scribes who did omens. And then your um, conjurers were like kind of necromancers, so they did illusions and enchantments and things like that. Exorcisms. I thought that was interesting, yeah. Um, the sorcerers, um, kind of like witchcraft, I'm going to say it that way. Casting spells. Voodoo, I'm getting a voodoo doll and stab knives into it and you're going to hurt. Right. Right. It's supposed to cover everything. All right. Right. And so when you think of... Yes, very occultic. And all of them draw on the powers of either illusion which are not it's not even true it's they're just faking it basically it's trickery or it's calling on the spiritual realm of their gods meaning that the spiritual darkness is influencing them right which is interesting if you think about it being spiritual darkness versus what is daniel's god he's the light and is that not what he actually proclaims when he makes his he, the light abides with him, and there's he, he exposes truth. He brings fruit, uh, truth forth. Not only that, but God himself deliberately gave this truth up front to Nebuchadnezzar. Interesting that Nebuchadnezzar was also prevented from fully remembering his dream. He, ha- he, had, he knew he had a dream. Have you ever had one like that where you knew you had a dream and you know it was really weird? You kind of remember one or two things about it, but you can't quite put it all together. It is whatever. Don't you wish you had Daniel? <laughs> Can you at least tell me my dream <laughs> and explain it to me? <laughs> actually, I probably don't want to know. My dreams are so weird. But um, <laughs> fortunately, I actually don't dream very often. I, I sleep very heavy. But um, Daniel and his friends... And the way that God is dealing with them in the midst of people like Arioch is something that you should have really highlighted in your study this week. The things that the things that God can do for you and me as we are dealing in this world of darkness by knowing who our God is and calling on what did Daniel do immediately when he found out that he was going to be executed for this failure on the part of the wise men hey yeah we need prayer warriors right now baby we need a prayer meeting and immediately his response was not to become frantic and wring his hands not to pace the floors and say why me this isn't fair right instead his his immediate response is let's seek out our god and see if our god has an answer to this if he will reveal it to us. And although it doesn't say it, but later we see Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego go into the fire, right? What was their statement about God? 
Yeah, whether we, whether we live or die, we still will not bow, right? So Daniel, it seems, has that same attitude here. We're going to seek out God to see if God will reveal this, although he seemed to be quite confident that God would. Maybe an intuitive uh, uh, connection in that moment, possibly. But... Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this would be great. Right. And then later he says, basically, so that none of them will die, right? So, but you're right. The first thought was, whoa, I don't want to die with all of them, right? And, and, it's, and it appears to me that God is orchestrating this in chapter 2 in very much the same way as in chapter 1, where in the midst of turmoil around him, the world is collapsing on their heads as wise men, Right? They have failed big time, and their king is judging them because of their failure. Does this correlate in any way to what Israel did as a nation? They failed their God big time, and what was the result? Judgment. So now we have an earthly king who, who consider the contrast there. God, creator of all things and of all, world, all the world and everything that's in it, in covenant with a national group of people called Israel, they failed him and then he judged them, right? And we think, well, that's just harsh, right? But now we have a king, an earthly king, a pagan king. He also has a group of people and he says, look, I hired you for a job. This was your job description and it's what you claimed you could do. And now you failed me. Interesting parallels in this. But never had he maybe understood or thought about understanding something that hadn't been revealed or talked about. Maybe. But you know, back in chapter 1, one of the first things that's told to us about Daniel, that God had gifted them with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. They were ten times better than all the others. And to Daniel, he gave what? Ability to understand dreams. So apparently something was happening between chapter 1 and 2 where maybe he had even demonstrated this a little bit along the way, which is why I think when Arioch went to him, maybe there was this, you know, maybe I should give him a chance because maybe he had already even demonstrated it to some measure. It doesn't say. But the, but the, but the bottom line is, Arioch has mercy and compassion in the same way as he did in chapter 1. He was given compassion in the sight of those who were oversight seers for him. It's interesting to me that they didn't go in already. Like they didn't know. Because it sounds like there's time where the king is calling in all these people. So what was going on, and it doesn't say, like what was going on that they didn't know this was happening? Where were they? And what does that what does that tell you? Since they didn't know, what does that tell you about the realm and the kingdom and how spread out things are? And it's not like they had internet. They weren't connecting on telephones. You know, they didn't have cell phones to call each other and tell each other everything. So apparently there were things where, and it seems to me like what we did see before, and we see it later when there's the promotion of Daniel in some of these other chapters, where uh, 
each of these wise men are seem to be dealt, relegated to certain areas. You do this, and you're going to do this, and you're gonna, and then there is a chain of command within the wise men that eventually Daniel is going to elevate uh, to the very top of, which causes him big trouble later, right? Um, okay, so now that's kind of the big backdrop to everything that's going on, and we've got a good picture on this. So now what we want to do for the rest of our time is really lay out the interpretation. What is the vision, and what is its interpretation? Because this is going to be a foundation upon which we are going to build everything else after this in the future. Uh, not Maybe not right away. It's going to be a few chapters before we get into another vision of end-time things, but we need to have our skeletal frame fully understood uh, at this point. Okay, so he's given this dream. You know, I wanted to say one other thing about that title, God in Heaven. Knowing your God, that, that he's God in heaven. Do you remember where he's, how he speaks of that in chapter, chapter two? This is the, 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 we said it's the Lord Adonai and God Elohim in chapter one, correct? But in chapter two, it's God in heaven. Uh, 2, 27 and 28, uh, it talks about that. Did anybody do a word study on heaven by chance or what it means? by? Because it's, again, another title for God, right? So first he's over here as the Lord and God, but now he's the God in heaven. So it seems like there's an assignment of a new title or a new quality or aspect of God. God of heaven or God in heaven? Okay, both. No, oh, ouch. Oh. No. Ow. Yeah, no, there's no distinction. There's no distinction between. Both of them relegate him to the subject matter of heaven. And, and I brought up earlier that many of the deities of Mesopotamia are understood to have been heavenly beings. But now they're heavenly beings that are contained in idols and kept in temples and served and so that so that they become uh uh what is the right word? Um cons yeah, there's a confinement or a constrainment of of their uh place of abode and so forth, where this God is not. And I think this is the distinction that I wanted to bring out with with understanding who our God is in chapter 1 and now moving into chapter 2 and considering the audience, which is Gentiles. It's the Babylonian world. What do they know about gods? Well, this is what they know. We've talked about it, right? So their gods are gods that are now of the heavenly realm, yes, so they understand that gods come from the heavenly realm, but then they confine them into an idol, and they put them in a temple, and then they serve them, and then they carry them around. They have barges for them. They have chariots for them. They feed them. They give them libation offerings. They, you know, they do all this. So it's a totally different concept of God. But in this one, with Daniel now, the contrast is to look at how does Daniel present God as God in the heavens or the God of heaven. And that's what he calls him. What, what does it say in uh, 227? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, or diviners are able to declare it to the king. Why? Because their little God, little G God, is a confined entity to a specific realm or a specific quality about human life. And they're, and they're limited, right? But he says, however, 
There is a God in heaven. Now, the emphasis, according to my definition, did anybody look it up? I want to give you a chance. You did? Okay, Kathy, tell me what you saw. Yes. Mm-hmm. Heaven as an abode of God. Okay. And uh, Eastern, Eastern's Bible Dictionary says it's a, the spiritual meaning is the place of everlasting blessedness of the righteous, the abode of the departed. Okay. So it goes on to expound our concept of heaven. Okay. And regarding God being at the realm of God, basically the abode of God, well, the abode of their gods is confined into a temple, right? Our God is the God of the heavens. And then uh, it goes on to say that it's not, it's, it, therefore he remains a spiritual being, right? That has a power of all these, all these, the sovereignty, the authority, the rulership. He is, he, and he created everything. And now he is the king of the heavens, right? Which is his abode. No man does what with him? What did, what did Paul say in Acts? He's not a God that what? lives in a temple made by human hands. He's not relegated to a... Does that verse now make a whole lot more sense to you? He's not relegated into a confined space. He is the God of heaven. But what's very interesting is in... Go to Daniel uh, 4.35, because he goes on in 35 later. It's It's just continuing to build on this concept of the God of heaven. And he tells you, therefore, what the effect of God is with this new concept of who God's, the, the God of Daniel is. What does he say in 435? Who has that? Wow. Okay. Sorry. Thank you very much, Amanda. So that gave you the full content. Well, that's good. 34. You know, you know, Kay Arthur does it all the time. She goes, oh, let's read 35. And then she goes, oh, well, let's back up to 30. She does it every time. She always backs up one more verse. She wants to give you the context leading in. So in this, with with when we get to chapter four, we're going to see this is um, the 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 salvation work of God through Nebuchadnezzar and what he eventually comes to understand about who Daniel's God is. And here what he says is um, he does, his God, Daniel's God does, what he does according to his will in the host of heaven, then the word and, circle it, highlight it, catch it, and among the inhabitants of the earth. Do you see what happens to the contrast between their God combined into a into a statue contained in a building made by human hands? Now there's the God of Daniel whose abode, his home, is in the heavens, and he does in the heavens and on the earth and the inhabitants of the earth his will. Woohoo! That's a contrast. That's huge. That's if you can grab hold of that wow moment in that thought, then you're going to understand better the whole flow of Daniel because you're going to catch hold of what is being taught to this pagan world about Israel. What's interesting to me is God wanted Israel to do this on their land. 
let this message be known to all the world who your God is. Live holy as Leviticus teaches because I am holy, right? And they wouldn't do it. Now he takes them into a pagan land. He finds those who are the sons of Judah who desire to praise God. And he uses them and he says, this is who Daniel's God is. He is the one who does his will in the heavens and on, in the, amongst the, the inhabitants of the earth. And nothing contains him. What a contrast. Yes. Well, you got to understand the politics that would have been going on then in doing that. Yes, even even in Israel. Do you remember when we did our king, our kings and prophets studies? Those we only got through five, I think, or six of them. They would knock them down, and then what would happen? The people would build them back up again. It was it was a constant fight. What about in our world today, in America, right now, here in Austin, Texas? What are we doing as Christians? We're trying to knock down the idols in the lives of people. And if they don't actually come into faith, what happens? They just go back and build it up. I, ha I had a lady in my life many years ago that was that way. I would quilt with her once a week, and every week she would pour out her heart and just bawl all over the place. And I would do, do you know, CPR and first aid all over her heart all through the, the day that we would spend together. And by the end of the day, she was all stoked up, and she was going to go to church, and she was going to read her Bible, and she was going to start praying, and she was, you know, she was all ready. I would walk out that door, and <laughs> by the time I came back the next week, <sighs> It was the same thing week in and week out. And I did that for months. Months. I finally gave up, you know. At some point you give up. She moved on. She started doing other things. But, you know, my bandages were not working because that's all they were. She was never taking that step of faith and putting her trust and faith in Jesus Christ, which is what I kept pointing her to. I kept saying, yes, it's Jesus. It's G Jesus, it's Jesus, and she was hung up in all the things of the law, and she could never measure up. She couldn't go. She couldn't come into forgiveness. She didn't understand the concept. She wouldn't. Yes, it is, and I pray that this. And I have kind of forgotten. If I think hard enough, I could probably remember her name now. I can't remember her first name. I remember exactly what she looks like, though, and I pray that she has found someone who was better at explaining it and that maybe her heart by then had been prepared to to receive that but you know pe people have to have to make that change and this is what we see in Daniel and this is what we'll be seeing eventually with Nebuchadnezzar is finally because think about all that's going on in these chapters and Nebuchadnezzar is witnessing it and yet here we are at the close of chapter two and although he gives praise to Daniel, he does not himself bow his knee to Daniel's God yet. Yes. There are a couple of verses, uh, 29 and 44, that go to uh, my favorite characteristic that I have for God, and that's to trust the Lord. Uh-huh. We see, we 
we've already seen we've read other books that uh, some had the plan to be part of they don't get part of Yes. There's so much in this in this whole thing. I mean, we could actually just keep talking on this subject here without even getting into the next part, but this is this is um the lessons that we can learn about who our God is is probably the most important thing that we learn in Daniel. Um and um I don't know that I really spent as much emphasis on it the last time I taught it, but it just seems like for me God is really leaning me in that direction this time around because I've already got the other figured out, so I'm really at peace with it. But you may not, so we need to move on and get into that. But what I want to show you then is in Daniel 4.35, it goes on to say that um, his will is done in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth. I had to find a verse outside of that immediate chapter 2. I had to move into 4 to get this statement. But it really says very declaratively in one verse exactly what is being represented to us in chapter 2. The contrast is their, their gods, their little gods, who are confined to space, right? And even limited, right? Uh, to specific realms. In other words, God, the uh, uh, let me put that little g, gods of, um, say, water, moon, um, fertility, etc. Okay, so that's the contrast that's being made here, and it's being brought to our attention. Okay, so now that that's done. So now Daniel breaks down into paragraphs, right? We see in one to three. I don't know if you titled your paragraphs or not, but I'm encouraging you to do that. Find a way to find segment breaks. Uh, Sometimes Kay does, she has them on our observation worksheets, bold, dark colored uh, letters, uh, numbers, like number four is dark. That tells you it's the beginning, in her opinion, the beginning of a new uh, paragraph. So if you want to use those as your uh, guideline, that's fine. Or you can ignore them and just find your natural breaks. Generally, your natural breaks will be either time references or terms of conclusion. Things like therefore or for this reason mark the beginning or the end of something, right? It'll For this reason tells you that everything I just told you before, now let me tell you what it means, right? So you can see that, for instance, in verse 4, it starts with the word then. Then the Chaldeans, you know, that's the beginning probably of a new paragraph. So the first three verses are a paragraph, and we see there Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that had troubled him, right? So however you want to title that, that's the event, correct? And when you're looking at historical records, you're looking for people, places, or events. Okay, so that's all you're looking for. It doesn't have to be cute it doesn't have to be real fancy it just has to say what is going on in there so nebuchadnezzar had a dream and it troubled him now what happens in verse four did anybody um, pick up on the fact that there has been a language change okay okay good question tell me what you think (laughs) 
they were say Okay, well, that's a that's a good point. That's a possibility. Now take it just a little bit further. On the spiritual side of things, if Daniel is the one writing this, right? He's making a record of what occurred in this time. And, and who's going to be reading this record? Yeah. Oh, wow, the king himself, right? And those who are living with him in that era. What is their language? Aramaic. If he writes it in the other language, what was the language that he was writing in prior? His own language, right? Which was Hebrew. So he had been writing in Hebrew previously because he was addressing things about his personal life, right? How he got there, why he was there, and so forth. Now he hits chapter 2 and he begins to bring into the storyline these Babylonian people, in particular the king that he was dealing with, right? And the language switches. So why do you think it switches? The record that's being given here is going to do what if a Babylonian person can read it? They're going to, yeah, the whole, it's real pragmatic. It's, I want these Babylonians to know this. Do you remember what happened? Go ahead. There you go. Thank you. Yes. So you were reading my mind, Kathy, because that's right where I was heading to chapter 5. What happens in chapter 5? He says to Belshazzar, the king, the king that follows Nebuchadnezzar, you knew all these things, and yet you did not honor the God of heaven. Right? Yes. It was Cal the language of the Chaldeans was Aramaic. That's right. And so it was the known common language of the people of that time. And if Daniel dared to make a testimony that the world of that time would hear about, read about, and understand, it had to be written. Can you imagine you and I be hand, handed a Japanese written uh, Bible? We would look at that and go, okay. You, Yoshiko could handle it, but I, there are, no, you still can't either? Oh, okay, well, so anyway, bad example then. But if, if I handed you a, you know, a Bible written in a, in a language of, a, of another nation, you would not know it. If I handed you an Aramaic Bible today, you would look at it and you go, okay, <laughs> right? Does it make sense? It's just pragmatic. He wanted the people of Babylon and that nation, and particularly that king, to see the record and read it and understand it. Okay, so the language switches in this portion. Because what is being addressed right here? The king, his kingdom, the things about his life. It's a historical record about the king and what is going to transpire concerning the king from chapter 2 onward. The first chapter opened with Daniel, though, telling how he got there. Not so important to the, the Chaldeans. They don't care. Nope. No. Chapter 4, all the way through chapter 7. Yes. 2. Chapter, chapter 2, starting in verse 4. And it goes through 728, if you want to mark your your scriptures. And after that, he does a switch back to Hebrew. Why do you think he does that? Yes, it is. That's exactly right. Because then the emphasis changes from 
the the Babylonian kingdom and that ki- and the people of that land, it switches to what God is going to do concerning Daniel and his people. So it goes back to Hebrew. Isn't that interesting? That is very interesting. I love it. Okay, which means, by the way, when you're doing your word studies and you start getting uh, some numbers that are like five and six digits long, it's because we've gone into a different language that we're not used to working. It's no longer three and four digit numbers. They're like 10 (laughs) because you're into another language book. Okay? Okay, and somebody asked me, I think it was you, James, uh, about my resources that I use for words. Okay, I've got it on this sheet. Oh, boy. <laughs> I know. I, I tell you, that's why I bought Lagos. Okay, so I have a, a Bible program, Lagos. It's, mine is the, um, the scholar edition. So it's not the very top, which is like uh, theological level. It's a little bit too much for me. I went with what they call the scholars. They consider it for the teachers. Uh, but I recommend it for everybody, not just teachers. Oh, yeah, it's very different, yeah. <laughs> Pay out the money, honey. <laughs> yes. Uh, Blue Letter Bible, yes, that's a good one too. A lot of people use it. Now listen, if there's anyone in here who's good at this, I know, Kristen, you use a lot of those things online, right? So if anybody's willing to give people help on how to do that, yeah, exactly. Help me. I wish I could. I can't. That's why I went and purchased my own. And I'm still, I own it and I still don't really fully know how to use it, all of it. But I've learned what I've needed to learn to get me where I'm at. I wish I knew more, though. There's a lot more in there. If I only knew, I'd probably be going crazy. But anyway, let me just. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can upgrade it, update it as years go by. But I've. You know, I've only done a, one upgrade in all these years. I've had I've had it for many years. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. Okay. It'll take you right to the link. Right. 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 So if you're if you are satisfied with the bit, the the basics. Then a free app is going to work just fine for you. And most of my students, they're happy with that. They wait for me to tell them the rest of the story, you know. But if you want more, if you're one that really likes to dig, then, for instance, here, let me just tell you what I used this week alone. I used my Enhanced Strong's uh, Lexicon. That's the Strong's Lexicon online on my Lagos Bible program. I also used the New American Standard Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek Dictionary updated, and that's by Robert Thomas. I also used my Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains, it's Hebrew, uh, James Swan. I used a theological word book of the Old Testament, and it's it's a conglomeration of different writers that do that book. And then the last one I use is called a concise dictionary of the words in the Greek Testament and the Hebrew Bible. Also, uh, Strong's writes that one. It's another one of his. So there are five dictionaries that I use this week. It's on your sh- my sheet that's coming to you. She'll be able to see it. Now, these are in the Bible program that I purchased. And so I have a link. When I open up my Bible page, 
and I go in and highlight so that the Strong's numbers are inputted, all I have to do is click on that number. It opens up the first one. I go to that one. I can click on another one. It opens up the next one. And so then it progressively just leads me from the first all the way down. So you always stay in line with the correct link because they've linked it for you. You don't have to look anything up. You just click and move. And then I copy and paste and put them onto my pages. I did. I did that. Yeah. <laughs> I did do that because I wanted a definition, and it was crazy. And most of it wasn't even accurate. So, yeah. I do, I do too. No. Yeah, no, it's big. Okay, all right. So we have to move on because we've got 15 minutes to cover all the rest of this. You're able to do word studies. That's what we're talking about, word studies. Yeah, that's what these are right here. What is the word? The word heaven is the word Shemayan, and it's the realm of God, the heavens, the abode of God, the, spir the spiritual gods, basically his home or his abode. Okay, so that's what we're talking about right now. Yeah, we're not looking at commentaries. Uh, although uh, last week she told us at the end on day five, go ahead and look at commentaries. Did she do that this week? No, okay, she said don't. And the reason is, yeah, right. I think at the end of five, uh, the very first uh, day on week three, at the end of lesson one for chapter one, she said go ahead and look at commentaries for chapter one. So you could have looked last week at what we did in chapter one only. But she doesn't want you to do that yet in this one. And the reason is today is a foundation builder. And when we move into chapter seven, eventually this is going to be added on. God is going to continue to give more dreams and give more details, and then it's going to expand. And interpretations of a lot of this will be given then. So we're going to wait and let the immediate text of the book on the whole of Daniel interpret Scripture for us. If it's ever possible, you let Scripture interpret Scripture, and you let the immediate context rule for your interpretation. It weighs the heaviest for good interpretation. So once you go beyond that, you start going into cross-references like we did this week to understand what is the stone and what is the mountain. We had to go into some cross-references for that. Um, 
if you couldn't figure it out from the immediate text, although I think you could, but um, then you need to go beyond that. Then that she'll tell you what to do and how to go about doing that. Although she actually, for the mountain, didn't give you any verses. She said, proof text it yourself. So I found some verses, and I don't know if I'm going to get to them, but they're on the chart. Okay, let's start out with this. We want to get this on, on the chart for sure. He, uh, okay, so now Daniel, we're, we did chapter 1. Um, or paragraph when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Then in 4 to 11, the Chaldean wise men were unable to declare that. We've talked about it. Uh, 12 to 13, the king declares death to all those wise men. They're going to be destroyed, right? Then he, uh, here comes Daniel. Daniel seeks the God of heaven, and God reveals the dream to Daniel, right? And he praises God, and that's what this beautiful anthem in 20 to 22 is, which is where I get my key verse for the chapter or the book on the whole. I like that particular section. Then you get to uh, 24 to 35. Now we're at the point where Daniel is going to tell the king his dream, right? And so you, when you look in uh, verses 31 to 33, he tells him right there off the bat, first of all, what has he told him his dream is about in verses 28 to 30? There's a, a repeated verse that says it three times. That's right. This dream, O king, is about things that will take place in the latter days in 28. And then in 29, twice he says, what would take place in the future? And he has revealed the mystery. He has made known to you what will take place. So now you know, very declarative, this is a historical unfolding of history that's being told to him, correct? Okay, so then he goes to verse 31, and he says, you, O king, were looking... And behold, what? A single great statue. So that should be the title of your of your uh, section that we're going to do on the board now. A single statue. And now we're going to look at each of the qualities that are represented to us in that. What does he What does he identify in the statue there in verse? The head. The first one is a head, and it's of gold, right? Okay, fine gold, yes. <laughs> All right, and what, uh, what does he say the next one is? Breast and arms of silver. Okay. Belly and thighs of bronze. Now, these are fun to look up, too, by the way, uh, to look in commentaries or other books that explain to you why these particular materials are used depictively in each of these areas. I was reading something on that last night. It was real good. Um, okay, and the last one? Legs and? Okay, so legs and its feet uh, of iron and of iron mixed with clay. Okay. All right. Now, okay, so that's in those verses 24 to 35, right? And he talks about then at the after the statue is described, then he continued. He said, yeah, and you continued looking.
And now what is he seeing? A stone. And what do we know about the stone? Cut without hands. Okay, so that was in verse 34. Um, it struck the statue. Uh-huh, and crushed it. Yeah, on feet. And crushed it, or crushed them. Does it say them or it? Them. them. I thought so. I liked that. It did that. Okay. And then they got my approval. <laughs> Just saying. Okay. <laughs> and then 35, what happened at the end? It, the stone did what? It crushed. Chris, the, uh, the statue all at the same time. And then, so you see the it, 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 right? It, what happened to it, the stone? Became a great mountain. It filled the whole earth. Okay, wow. So we did good, right? Now we got the we've got the dream down. We got the basics that were in it. He concluded in verse thirty-seven or thirty-six, and he said, "And this was your dream, right?" Now he's going to go back and he's going to say, "Now I'm going to give you his interpretation, correct?" Which is what the king was looking for. What is the head of stone? What did we learn about it? He talks about the God of heaven again. The God of heaven, which is our key word for God in this particular chapter. The, the key identifying word is he's the God of heaven. And what does this God of heaven do? Okay, but before that, identifying as far as what he gave to the king, as far as the identifying part about the head, but he says there's a God in heaven who does what? He reveals mysteries, right? And what has this God done? He has who, one, reveals mysteries, and number two, what has he done? He has made known to what? To Nebuchadnezzar. And then here's our, our key repeated phrase. What will happen in the latter days, right? That's in verse 28. All right, so now he says, he goes on to the king. He says, what does he say? You are the head of gold. You are the head of gold. You. You meaning the king, right? Nebuchadnezzar. And he says about them, he said, what has he told him that God had given to him? God gave you... I keep losing my spot here. 
Yeah, 37. God has given you the what? The kingdom. Now that's important to understand. The first thing he identifies is that he had given him a kingdom, right? You are the head of gold. He gave you the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. So he goes on to explain what that, how that kingdom is, what it looks like. And then what does it say God did? God caused you to what? Caused you to rule. Okay. So I'm going to shorten that to rule over it, right? That kingdom, meaning all, in all the things that are in it, right? Now, here's what's important for us to know. This right here establishes a pattern for us then on everything else that follows it. So what you can understand then is when you get to the next part, he says, you're the head of gold. Uh, God gave you a kingdom. He caused you to rule over it. So he's talking about kingdoms and rulership. Does that fit with the context that we've already set for this book? It's exactly falling in line with that. So what we're seeing is the statue dream actually gives a representation visually to this um, King Nebuchadnezzar about kings and kingdoms that are going to rise up and come, be taken down. You are the head of gold. And then there's a time reference given. So you might want to add a little clock in there. And what does he say after that concerning the, the breast? Then he says, after you. So if you didn't put a clock on that, after you, you need to do that. After you will arise another kingdom. Right. And that's in verse 39, and it's going to be inferior. Okay. Then he says about the belly, what? Do we have another time reference there? Then a another third. So now has it actually defined for us that there is a first, a second, and a third kingdom that are being depicted so far in this in this statute, correct? A third kingdom. Yep. Right. Which will rule over all the earth. Okay, and yes, yeah, so, so now we're down to the legs, and then there's another clock because the word then is given to us. Then a fourth kingdom. Now, on the fourth kingdom, what's interesting is how does it compare to what's given to us in information from the second and third kingdom? Yeah, it gives a lot more details to us, doesn't it? What does that tell you when Scripture gives you more detail about one thing than another? In other words, in this case, you're seeing in verse 39, two kingdoms are being addressed, right? It's just this kingdom and then this kingdom. But then when it gets to the fourth kingdom, how many verses are there contributed to that one? Three, right? 40, 41, 42, and part of 43. So basically four. You could say four Verses then, right? Nope. No, why not? You tell me why not. 
tell me what you, but what do you see? What is it? Okay. Yes. Amanda? How much? There's a fourth kingdom. Did it say there's a fifth kingdom? What's the pattern that is set? The first one is given to us. The second one is says, after you will arise another, meaning a second, right? A second kingdom, right? And then after a third kingdom and after a fourth kingdom. Does it ever mention a fifth kingdom? No. Yes. There will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Uh, verse 40, right? Um, it also tells us in 41, it actually goes and it talks about the feet, right? What does it say about the feet in 41? And it's partly of iron and partly of clay. That's in 41. It will be, and therefore, it will be a divided kingdom. Now, we're going to learn more about what that all means. We're not ready for it yet. But it's, but it's basically telling us this fourth kingdom is different. It's a little bit unique. It's giving us expounded information, and it's saying... It has, the when you hit the legs from the basically below the knee down, because the rest of it's the torso or the, or the thighs, right? Then it talks about the legs from the knees or below the knees down. It's, it's the legs and feet, and its feet, one kingdom, fourth. And that fourth kingdom is different in that it's going to be a divided kingdom. It's going to be partly iron, partly clay. You can start examining what you think that all might mean in your head, and you can do some research on that if you'd like to do some word studies. It says in here, though, in 41, it kind of explains what it means, doesn't it? What does it say? It will have what? The toughness of iron mixed with common clay. So what's the distinguishing in between iron and clay. One is strong and one is more brittle, right? Uh, so he says in 42, some of it will be strong and partly it will be brittle, right? So that's in 41. Um, <laughs> there you go. Some will be strong and part will be brittle. It's going to be fun when we get to start seeing what all this means. And it says at the bottom one, now this is when it changes from the it and they, or, or the it and the feet, basically, the legs and the feet. Now it goes in and it calls it they, right? They will combine, but not adhere. Now, who could the they be referring to here? We're going to be... Okay, it's talking about the seed of men. And depicted in the statue is an, a statue that has legs with feet. What do feet come with? Ten toes. 
Now, this is going to make better sense to you for interpretation once you get to the next dream that's going to give more understanding of that later. But for right now, what you can see, though, is whatever it is talking about is talking about in the seat of men, that there's going to be somehow a, a um, coalition or a gathering of men. They're, they're going to come together as a unit, but then they're not going to adhere to one another. Something's going to happen. And it also speaks about within that unit, some is brittle and some is strong. And so this is beginning to kind of warm you up to understanding. And since you know you're talking about a kingdom, right? This is a kingdom. Right? These are all kingdoms. There's some kind of a kingdom. It's the fourth kingdom. And it's of iron, and, and some of it's iron mixed with clay. And so that's what we know so far. Now, let's keep going. We've got a couple more points to get up here on this, on the interpretation. And then we'll stop. And then he goes on, and he follows after 43 with 44. And what does he say? You continued looking in the dream. And here he says in 44, what's God going to do? The God of heaven will set up a kingdom um, Yeah, I missed that verse. In, in the uh, in the days of those kings, that was an important one. How did I miss that on my chart? I don't know. In the days of those kings. Now, that's interesting. Those kings. Now, who could the, those kings be referring to? Is it talking about the whole statue, or is it still talking the subject of the fourth kingdom? The fourth kingdom, right. So, we make sure you get proper interpretation. So apparently in the fourth kingdom, there's going to be more than one king. It's going to be kings, right? And if the depiction is feet that has ten toes, what might the implication be then if it's the, in, the, in the time of those kings? Ten kings, possibly. Okay? So just kind of have that in the back of your head. In the days of those kings, okay, um, so let's just put a bunch of little crowns up here as a depiction. I'm just going to put three for right now because we're not ready to, to be definitive on the ten, but at least you know that it is speaking of a multitude of kings in that fourth kingdom, and somehow they are going to be coming together to make a coalition that somehow is partly brittle, part, partly strong, but they're not really going to adhere to one another. So there's going to be apparently some issues. When you think of a kingdom that comes together with a coalition of kings, think about it. What do you think is going to happen in a coalition like that? Different ideas? Well, who gets the ultimate power in that too, by the way? Could you imagine having two or three presidents all at one time and they're all trying to share the running of our nation? That talk about a power struggle, right? They would be they would be never agreeing on anything and probably almost nothing would get done. There would be some problems. So if you not that we're not doing that right now. You are so right about that. It sure does. So, I mean, you can kind of get a grasp of already what's being portrayed to you right here is a picture of a coalition of rulers who come together as one, the fourth kingdom, 
but they don't exactly adhere to one another. And some is strong and some is weak, and there's going to be more to this story when we get another dream. All right? So here we are. There he says, and then at the, when he does that, in the, in, um, in the days of those kings then, let's talk about what else we see. Okay, so the, this kingdom, and I like to make this kingdom with a cross on it because it's going to be the, God's kingdom, right? Uh, it says, it will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms. Yeah. But, like that word but, it will itself endure forever. Whew. Wow, that's a beautiful picture for us. Beautiful picture. We're out of time, but I'd like to know, what do you think the stone is? You did some work on that on your own. What did you guys determine the stone is? Who is the stone? The stone is Jesus, right? She took us to verses that made it very clear for you to understand that depicted in Scripture, especially that first one she took us in Genesis, where it says, um, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. This is when the blessing was being given to, to Jacob or, or to uh, uh, the sons of Jacob, I think it was, right? I'm not sure. But it says, he says, but from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So that's the first inference that the shepherd, which we all know as being pictured is Jesus, is going to be the shepherd. And he is also called the stone of Israel. That's interesting. Then it says, a living stone in 1 Peter, a choice and precious stone in the sight of God, Jesus Christ. So he's named in that 1 Peter one. And then it goes on in 2.7 of 1 Peter to say, and he who believes in him, that stone, right, will not be disappointed. So stone, I think, became pretty clear. What about the mountain? Did you have trouble with that one? Did anybody figure out what the mountain depicted? Oh, okay. And in what capacity? For the context of what we're looking at, what are we looking at here? What are we looking at here? What are all of these? Kingdoms. Kingdoms. Okay. So when you're talking about Mount Zion, you're speaking of Mount Zion in that verse in the capacity of it being a kingdom, correct? Because it says to us at the end of this, by through the interpretation, that at the end of all these other kingdoms, these four that are mentioned, God of heaven is going to set up his kingdom. We know Jesus is the stone of that kingdom. You enter into that kingdom by believing in him and you will not be disappointed, First Peter, right? And then he says his kingdom is going to crush and put to an end all these kingdoms of men. And now we're going to have the kingdom of God and it will endure forever, Mount Zion, right? So if you tie that all together, then the mountain is again representing what? A kingdom, a kingdom. Now I'm going to give you a couple of verses you can look at. Jeremiah 51, uh, 24 and 25. And let me just read this. He says, but 
and, and this is a good declarative statement of what the mountain actually means. He says in this one, Jeremiah is prophesying. He says, but I will repay Babylon. We know all about what's going on with Babylon, right? He says through Jeremiah, I'm going to repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes. When he went in, three sieges, crushed, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, took all the people captive. That's where we are with Daniel. And he says, I'm going to um, repay them for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. But I am against you, O destroying mountain meaning Babylon, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt-out mountain. Wow, does that not clarify for you that mountain is talking about a kingdom? Babylon being the, the kingdom that God is going to uh, bring vengeance against on the behalf of his people. Then in Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, it also says, now in uh, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, as you said earlier, Angie, about Mount Zion, this is what it's speaking of, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. What does he say? It will crush and put to an end all of these. It will itself as a kingdom endure forever. Isn't that amazing? So mountain is also a symbolic picture of kingdoms. Context will rule, obviously, for interpretation. There are other places where a mountain actually means a mountain. But in this context, mountain is depicting the kingdom. Okay? Y'all did a great job, by the way. And we, we 